listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. Trinity Church Chester is a new church seeking to reach the city with the good news of Jesus Christ. And at the heart of our ministry is our Sunday worship service, in which we hear a sermon preached from a particular part of the Bible. We're glad you're listening. We'd love to see you in person at the Welsh Presbyterian Church Building on St. John Street in the city centre. We meet there every Sunday at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, and you can find more details on our website trinitychester.church Come and join us as we seek to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Scripture reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to read the whole chapter, verses 1 to 22. Let's hear God's word. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The names of his firstborn son, actually the name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands, and commanders of fifties, and some to plough his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his implements of war, and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, and cooks, and bakers. He will take the best of your fields, and vineyards, and olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. Amen. This is God's word. 
Well, here at Trinity, throughout this calendar year, uh, we've, we're having a series of sermons on the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And rather than having one long series without any breaks, we're taking 1 Samuel in three parts. At the beginning of the year, we looked at uh, chapters 1 to 7 over a number of weeks. And now, after a short break, the plan is to continue with chapters 8 to 15 this month and next month. I'm sure the beginning of the year feels like a long time ago for many of us, and some of you have joined us since then and weren't here for the first part of 1 Samuel. So to help us get oriented or or reoriented, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel are books of the Bible that document for us part of the history of God's people, which in the Old Testament was the nation of Israel. And the particular focus of 1 and 2 Samuel revolves around the nation of Israel becoming a monarchy, That is a nation that would be governed not by judges, as had been the case immediately prior to 1 Samuel, but a nation governed by a king, a monarchy. 1 Samuel, then, is all about how God's people are ruled or governed. In the first part of 1 Samuel, in chapters 1 to 7, we saw several instances of how miserable life was for God's people when they had the wrong kind of leaders governing them. In fact, The book opens in chapter 1 with a report of the misconduct of Eli's sons who were appointed to lead God's people in worshipping him rightly. And in light of that leadership failure, God raised up a man named Samuel to lead God's people as a judge, which was the role of the judge, by the way, was a role that encompassed far more than the role of a legal judge in our society. It essentially encompassed every aspect of government as we know it. Uh, The judge was the governor. Uh, And by the end of chapter 7, this man, Samuel, was carrying out the role of judge for the good of God's people. He was governing as God intended. Yet when we get to chapter 8, another change in relation to the leadership of God's people is on the cards. The elders of Israel came to Samuel with this request that we read at the end of verse 5. Appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. It's a request that dominates the whole of chapter 8. It's repeated uh, by the narrator in verse 6. It's responded to by God as he addresses Samuel in verses 7 to 9. And then by Samuel on behalf of God as he addresses the people in verses 10 to 18. And it's reiterated by the people in verse 19. Before it's granted by God... In verse 22, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But what does this request and its response have to do with us today? Well, it has everything to do with us because it highlights for us what God's people need and how God will provide it. The ruler we need And how God will provide him. So I want us to look at this passage briefly this afternoon under three headings. Recognition, rejection, and response. Uh, First of all then, recognition. We need to recognize in the first place the great importance of getting the right leaders to lead God's people Before the people bring their request for a king, we're told in verses 1 to 3 about the failures of Samuel's sons. Verse 1, 
Uh, We read that when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. And these sons, Joel and Abijah, did not carry out their roles as judges as their father Samuel had done. We read in verse 5, sorry, verse 3. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Now, if the first part of 1 Samuel was fresh in our minds, we'd quickly recognise that this is a familiar story. The judge who ruled God's people prior to Samuel was a man named Eli. Eli also had two sons whom he also appointed as leaders over God's people. And his two sons, just like Samuel's two sons, also abused their positions of authority for the sake of their own gain. Back in chapter 2, we read of how God held, in response to this, not only Eli's sons to account for their actions, but he also held Eli to account. Eli had appointed them. Eli had failed in dealing with them as they ought to have been dealt with when their conduct came to light. And there was a hint here at the beginning of chapter 8 that Samuel, like Eli, is not regarded as blameless in relation to how his sons abused their positions of authority. In verse 1, it's pointed out that it was Samuel who installed his sons as judges. In verse 3, even though we're given the names of Samuel's sons in verse 2, Joel and Abijah, in verse 3 they're not referred to by their names. They're referred to as Samuel's sons. It is as though some blame, even though it's not by any means all of the blame, is being laid at Samuel's door when it comes to the misconduct of his sons. It seems to be the case that with Samuel, just as with Eli, although perhaps in less severe fashion here, there was a certain lack of care taken to ensure that the right leaders were appointed to lead God's people. This carelessness when it came to appointing leaders in the church was significant because of what it resulted in. It resulted in a lack of justice for God's people. That is to say, life for God's people under the leadership of Samuel's sons was not pleasant. To say that they took bribes and perverted justice is to reveal something of how God's people would have felt There would have been no confidence that decisions were being made for the good of God's people, for the sake of upholding God's honour among his people. And there would have been no comfort to be found if ever you were wronged. No confidence that the issue would be put right and resolved. There would have been little hope of justice because Samuel's sons delivered their verdicts in favour of the highest bidder. It would not have been a pleasant place to be. And what we need to recognise is that the same danger exists in the church as we know it today when it comes to leaders being appointed in our context. When we are careless in appointing elders, those whom the New Testament describe as having the authority to oversee and shepherd God's people in the church... When we're careless in appointing elders, 
we run the very real risk of making the church an unpleasant place to be. We need to learn from these examples in 1 Samuel and seek to take great care when it comes to appointing elders in the church. Now, uh, you might well switch off whenever you hear the subject of elders being addressed in church because you feel that the role of the elder is not a role that you'll ever carry out yourself. Perhaps it isn't. Uh, When we pray for ministers and elders of churches, perhaps you get a little fed up and you wish that we'd spend more time praying for other individuals. But we need to realise that the appointment of elders in the church is something that affects us all, positively or negatively. Here, Samuel's sons had been appointed seemingly with little care, just as Eli's sons had carelessly been allowed to occupy their office as priests, even though they were living blatantly immoral lives. And the result of this carelessness was that God's people suffered. God's people suffer when we fail to take care in appointing leaders in God's church. And so don't switch off when this subject is addressed, because this is something that has everything to do with each one of us, not only to those of us who might serve as elders. What should we do then? Well, we should take care when it comes to appointing elders. We should be diligent in seeking to appoint only men who meet the criteria for what qualifies a man to serve as an elder, as is laid out for us in the Bible. That means that we shouldn't seek to appoint elders for pragmatic reasons, merely because we want or we feel we need elders. We shouldn't seek to assess candidates for eldership purely on the basis of their gifts, their knowledge, their ability to oversee and govern in certain contexts, their teaching ability. Samuel's sons undoubtedly would have met the criteria on this basis. At their knowledge, they would have acquired at the feet of their father, Samuel. Samuel, the man whom the Lord spoke with directly. Just imagine the anecdotes in their sermons. A little while ago, Dad came home after speaking with God and said... They clearly, as well, had an ability to oversee and govern, but they put that ability to use in pursuit of their own gain rather than the good of God's people. They took bribes. They perverted justice. Which is why when we get to the New Testament and the criteria for elders is laid out there, so much of what qualifies a man or disqualifies a man from the office is found in his character. And then beyond his character, in his home. Does he manage his home well? If he's married, is he a husband who serves for the good of his family? If he has children, is he a godly and an effective father to his children? Because if a man who does not possess integrity when it comes to his own character, when it comes to his own home, If such a man is somehow appointed to serve as an elder in the church, then we mustn't be surprised when God's people suffer as a result of his leadership. Yet, this is a lesson that applies to all of us in relation to our individual lives, aside from the important subject of leadership in the church. 
Because one of the ways we could summarize this lesson, it's a lesson as well that's repeated throughout 1 Samuel, is we could summarize it as giftedness is no substitute for godliness. That is to say, our abilities, our gifts, they're really of no use to others if we focus on them at the expense of living a godly life, a life of integrity and justice. Now, when it comes to what we each have to offer in the church, and, and we do each have plenty to offer, the most important thing is not whether we are competent in this regard or in that regard, but the most important thing is our Christ-likeness. Because competence without Christ-likeness is a dangerous thing in the life of the church. And so we need to take care when it comes to appointing leaders in the church. And throughout 1 Samuel, we are met with motivation to do so because having the right leaders is a great blessing to God's people, but having the wrong leaders sets God's people on the pathway to misery. Recognition. We need to recognize the importance of this. Secondly, rejection. In 1 Samuel 8, the dominating theme is that of rejection. This is how God interprets the request that people make for a king. Look down at verses 4 to 7. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being their king over them. At first glance, we might not think that there's much in the people's request for a king. They're once again suffering at the hands of ungodly leaders. They want relief. We also know from a speech that Samuel gives later on in the book in 1 Samuel 12 that at this point in time, God's people were once again under attack from a hostile neighboring nation, the Ammonites. We, we rightly might have some sympathy with Israel in this regard. The people feel their weakness. They feel their frailty. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's a, it's a very healthy thing for us to feel our weakness and to recognize our frailty. But the people are at fault here when it comes to how they respond to their weakness. Instead of laying out their predicament before God and humbly asking for his mercy, they lay out their plans before God and demand that he carry them out. Instead of depending on God, they dictate to him. Give us a king to judge us. We can relate to this attitude, can't we? Isn't it ironic that we are capable of, on the one hand, having a deep sense of our own limitations, and yet, on the other hand, thinking that we're competent enough to know exactly what we need and what God should do? And this demand that the people make to Samuel is seen by God for what it is. It's a rejection of God as their king. 
How is that the case? How does this request equate to a rejection of God? Well, the answer isn't found in the fact that it's a king the people are asking for, as though that was forbidden, because it wasn't. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, after God had brought his people out of slavery in Egypt and uh, was bringing them into the promised land, he'd outlined for them stipulations regarding what an Israelite king was to do and be like and how he was to be appointed. God always intended for there to be a king over his people. It wasn't the request for a king, per se, that signaled a rejection of God. But there are two things that signal a rejection of God in this request that the people make to Samuel. Firstly, the very attitude that the people had in making the request signals a rejection of God. When the people come to Samuel and, and lay out their demands for God, at that point they are no longer submitting to God's rule, but they are insisting on their own rule. At which point it's clear these people are not content to have God as king. They are not content to patiently submit to the way God chooses to govern his people, even as he allows these ungodly leaders to continue in office, and even as he allows another outside threat. The people are saying, enough is enough. Life would be better if we could govern it ourselves. We're taking control. Once again, we should recognise our own tendency towards that attitude. How often are we unwilling to be patient in the circumstances that we find ourselves in? And instead of prayerfully asking the Lord for his help, we take action beyond that which we're called to take. But there's another way in which we see the people rejecting God here. And it's found in the comparison the people make with the nations around them. And they say in verse 5, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And when they reiterate the request in verse 19, they say, there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Do you see what God's people are saying here? God's people are telling Samuel that they believe life is better for those who are not God's people. The people of Israel look over at neighbouring nations with their kings and they think, I wish that was us. That's what we see in the Lord's response as well in verse 8. He says, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they're also doing to you. Israel's request for a king is a rejection of God because it's a request to be like the nations. And we need to take a moment to recognize the great sadness that there is in this request. What God's people are essentially saying to God is that they're fed up of being his people. God's people are called to be distinct from those around them. Different than those who aren't in relationship with God. But here are the elders of Israel standing before God's chosen leader Samuel saying to him, 
We don't want to be God's people any longer. After all that God had done for his people, bringing them out of slavery, conquering the enemies who oppressed them, establishing his covenant with them, joining himself to them, here they are declaring that they no longer want to be his people. Because to reject God's rule, to reject God's ways, to look longingly at the lives of those who we perceive to be free from the restriction of God's rule, to do that is to reject God himself. Do we know this? Do we know the seriousness of this? When we look at the lives of non-Christians around us and how it seems to us that they're not constrained at all by God's rule and when we wish that their life was our life, When we say in our hearts, I know that God's word teaches that this is how I ought to live, but I want to live that way. That's a deep sadness to what we are actually doing in those instances. We're rejecting God. Recognition, rejection. Thirdly and finally, response. We see here... Once again, God's people in 1 Samuel in something of a sorry state. God has raised up another faithful leader in Samuel, but once it seems that he's on his way out and circumstances take a turn for the worse, God's people turn away from him. It often doesn't take very much for us to stray from God. The question is then, how will God respond to such unfaithfulness? God instructs Samuel in verse 9 to grant the people their request, but to warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. In a nutshell, he responds by giving them the type of king they want. They want a king like the nations, they'll get a king like the nations. And in fact, seeing this play out is the main focus of this second part of 1 Samuel, as we see a man named Saul appointed as king. What this king will be like is outlined for us in this passage by Samuel in verses 10 to 18. And it it doesn't make for pretty reading. I don't know if you picked that up when we read the passage. There are two aspects, in fact, of this king's reign that are particularly concerning. The first is that with this king, it's always wartime and never peacetime. In verse 11, Samuel tells the people, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plough his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. This king is all about war, all about fighting battles, only the battles never end and the war is never won and he is forever enlisting the people in his army to fight this eternal war. Which highlights the second thing that's concerning about this king. He's a king who takes and who takes and who takes. 
He takes your sons for his army, Samuel says in verse 11. In verse 13, we're told that he will take your daughters to serve him. In verse 14 and 15, he will take the people's hard-earned produce and property. And so on it goes. Here is a king who will take and take and take and who sacrifices the lives of his people for his own sake as he enslaves them in verse 17. In verse 18, we're told that the people will cry out because of their king, the king whom they have chosen for themselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. That's how the Lord responds to his people rejection of him. Sobering, yes. Justified, absolutely. And yet it's not the only way the Lord responds. Because the king whom Samuel describes points to another king. He points to another king not by anything he has in common with this later king, but by embodying the exact opposite of him. The Lord Jesus Christ is presented to us in the Bible as the ultimate king. And he's the king not of our choosing, but of God's. He's the king who brings an end to wartime. He conquers our enemies of sin, death and the devil and he ushers in an era of peace. Beginning with granting us peace with God. And the way he conquers and brings peace is not by taking and taking and taking, but by giving. He doesn't sacrifice the lives of his people for his sake, but he sacrifices his own for ours. What's the Lord's response to his people's unfaithfulness? What's the Lord's response to our unfaithfulness? It's to give his son. Who in giving his life becomes the king we need. Not merely the king we think we need. And so what should our response be? It should be to wholeheartedly trust this God to rule our lives as he sees fit. It should be to bring our lives into greater and greater submission to his word. And it should be to follow in the pattern of our great king by giving ourselves to others rather than demanding others serve us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we, we recognize ourselves in this passage. We recognize our own unfaithfulness in the unfaithfulness of your people here. We thank you that you're a God of mercy. We thank you that you're a God who knows exactly what we need. Forgive us. For when we think that we know better than you and help us to trust in you, to depend on you, to bring our lives as a greater submission to you. 
And we praise you for our great King, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that he is a King who gives and who brings peace. And we ask that we would be like him in these ways. In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Trinity Church Chester Sermon Podcast. We hope that this message is a blessing to you. If you'd like to know more about the Christian faith and what it means to live as a Christian, please do get in touch. You can email hello at trinitychester.church or head to the Connect page on our website, trinitychester.church forward slash connect. We'd love to hear from you soon.